Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Tom Tugendhat, who, of course, was on the show a few weeks ago talking about China, but very kindly agreed to come back on to talk about Russia. Now, if you haven't read the Russia report, or even if you have, this is the best briefing on it I've heard by a politician. We go through the report in detail. He explains what some of the phrases mean um, and, and the implications of the findings and the context behind it. I've not heard a politician talk about the Russia report as well as Tom does on this podcast. So you're in for a real treat. And he brings his own personal experience and expertise to it. This is superb. Obviously, he's chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. I've had a few guests back over the years, but but none so quickly. And um, he's just brilliant. He really knows his stuff inside out. And that is hugely reassuring that that expertise is there at the heart of our democracy keeping us safe and he explains so much of it in simple terms and gives great contextual analysis this is just brilliant i'm really excited now um i'm very excited I've got some personal news um that you may have seen on social media that i've written a book uh, and it is going to be out on the 8th of october you can order you can pre-order it now um through blackwell's i'll put a link um in the show notes it's I never, you know, I never thought I would write a book. So it's a real treat for me to have to have been given the opportunity. It's called Politically Homeless, and it's a part memoir about my time in politics. So some behind the scenes stories, as well as, and it's a funny book, a comedic analysis of um, basically how everything has gone to shit. But um, you can buy it now. I know a lot of people during the lockdown, certainly at the start, wanted to help the show in some way. Um, so that is something you can do. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast. The book is up your street. So Politically Homeless um, is a, a book that I've written that is out. Um, and as I say, you can pre-order it. It'll be out in October. Um, it's just obviously just a really cool thing. So I, I feel guilty for the self-promotion. But um, yes, you can order that. And the, and the link is in the uh, the show notes. So I'm going to stop banging on now. Um, and I will leave you in the, the ever-capable hands of Tom Tugendhat. Uh, Tom, welcome back. Thanks very much, Matt. It's lovely to see you uh, now released from your captivity <laughs> as well. Yes, yes, I'm allowed to leave the house once a day now, so I'm making the most celebrate of Celebrate Nottingham Forest's great victories. Oh, Jesus, Matt. Sorry, did I say that out loud? Oh, it feels like such an immature thing to be upset by, but it was incredible. It, it, if we'd have lost in the playoffs, that would be different. So it, it, I still haven't really fully processed what happened. A kind of freak of maths. Oh man! Sorry, I really, I really, I've discombobulated you, haven't I? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about cheerier things like Russian espionage to uh, to cheer ourselves up. Um, I've just read the Russia report. I'm sure you've read it. Um, yeah. it, it's an area that you have a, a lot of expertise in. First, I just want to go through the report 
kind of in chronological order in the way that the, the report is structured. It starts off with the context of Russia and the observation that Russia is both strong and weak. But one of the remarkable things early on in the report, when it tries to ascertain what Russia actually wants, is that its substantive aims are actually quite limited. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that what Russia fundamentally wants, or rather what the Russian governing elite fundamentally want, because there's a very big difference between the governing elite and the Russian people, but what the Russian governing elite fundamentally wants is to survive till tomorrow and not be murdered in their beds by another mafia don who's around the corner. And that's pretty much it, right? Yes, they want to keep on to their cash, but actually their cash is not just a sort of, uh, I want to buy a Rolls Royce, but you need a lot of cash if you're going to have enough bodyguards to stay alive, right? So the cash isn't just, you know, if you and I got a couple of million quid, well, we'd we'd probably have quite a lot of fun with it, right? (laughs) We wouldn't be immediately thinking, right, the first thing I've got to do is I've got to hire a couple of heavies because otherwise I'm going to get murdered by my next door neighbour. Whereas these guys, that's what they've got to think about. But the Russian government, you know, I mean, we know that it just likes to financially support different voices, renegade voices in, in different democracies to just sow disinformation and, and just a general sense of chaos. But as a strategic actor, the Russian government actually isn't, I mean, obviously it annexed Crimea, but globally, it, it, it's, its aims seem actually quite limited. Well, look at it. I mean, forgive me, you've got to look at it the other way around. So it's not, it's not what Russia's doing to us that's interesting, if you see me, trying to murder the Prime Minister of Montenegro, trying to destabilise, uh, you know, Germany during the uh, refugee moments, you know, murdering the Skripals, or attempting to murder the Skripals, rather. You know, that's not what this is about. This is about what Russia is doing to itself. Mm. So what the Putin regime is doing is it's, it's doing several things. The KGB element, which is... Uh, you know, now called the FSB, but frankly, is rather more like the KFC. They've been so completely stripped out. The Federation of Small Businesses. Oh, yeah, well, they are a bit. But the, um, I mean, no, well, no, the Federation of Small Businesses can organise things, so <laughs> they're actually competent. What the uh, FSB and the SVR are trying to do is not, you know, destabilise us, although that's helpful, is they're trying to secure themselves. So the fundamental element is not to say, you know, British politics has failed, but to say to the Russian people, look, all politics is rubbish. You aren't that badly governed. Everybody does the same thing. This is normal. So what they're trying to do by destabilizing, making sure that there are political murders in other countries, making sure that democracy is untrustworthy, of course, it's to weaken us. Of course, it's to, you know, make us less potent enemies. Yeah. But the fundamental thing is to make sure the Russian people don't think that their government is a corrupt mafia dictatorship that needs to be changed. When the report touches on cybercrime and cybersecurity, there's a phrase in it where it says uh, the, the Russians engage in pre-positioning activity on other states' critical national infrastructure. What is pre-positioning? Uh, it means, uh, well, it means a variety of things, but it means loading up software, loading up hardware, years in advance buying up uh, technology that you might use in the future so that you you know it's it's like putting a padlock on a gate and coming back years later with the key okay and in cyber terms that would be what just being ahead of the curve on sort of new technologies well not not necessarily they could be old technologies you know it could be it, it could be just a, a link box or, a, you know what I mean, something, something pretty basic that they don't know that they need it. But you know what? Stick it there. It's not very expensive. Most tech these days isn't that expensive. Stick it in. If you need it in 5, 10, 15 years' time, well, it may have been gone by then, but you know what I mean, in, in, in a few years' time, then, you, uh, then, then, you, then it's there because you put the lock in earlier. And what do we define as critical national infrastructure? Is that, you know, government departments, the Bank of England? Yeah, electricity, um, pylon, you know, the electricity okay. network, uh, water, uh, quite a few university research departments can qualify if they're doing uh, various different pieces of work, nuclear power stations, obviously, you know, the, the range is actually quite large. Our telecoms network, uh, as we've uh, been talking about Huawei a lot recently, uh, you know, that's critical national infrastructure. So it's, it's I mean, if you like, it's, it's the nervous system of the UK economy. 
and one of the things the report highlights is, is that it's not just the Russian state and the Russian government, but they are working with organized crime in Russia together. Um, I mean, is that, you know, I, I imagine it's a fairly sort of crony-ish system anyway. Um, but the, the Russian state is clearly comfortable working with yeah. serious criminals. So the problem is that the, the line is very difficult to be clear on. So the Russian state and the criminal organizations blur or merge into one. It's not fair to say that every Russian official is an organized criminal. That's, that's not true. Nor is it true that every organized criminal is working for the Russian state. But the overlap, certainly the higher up you get, is, is pretty striking. So you'll see that, you know, uh, GRU officers are doing, you know, the kind of sort of pathetic attempts at a hit job like they did in, in Salisbury, um, rather cack-handed and rather amateurish, because, of course, you know, the problem with corruption, of course, is it steals off everyone, right? It steals off your security forces, too. So, you know, the old KGB that was feared in the, in the you know, John le Carre novels and the Bond movies and all the rest of it, that has been stripped out by Putin's corruption. So all this sort of, you know, I'm protecting Russia, it's absolute rubbish. He's stolen all the money for um, the FSB. He's stolen all the money for the army. He's stolen all the money for the Air Force and the Navy. And that's why you get things like the Kursk. That's why you get these intelligence failures all over the place, because he's He's nicked all the cash off them just as much as he's nicked it off the people who build the roads and build the hospitals and the schools. And so what those guys are doing, of course, is they're funding themselves, right? I mean, if, if you don't get money off the state, where are you going to get cash from? Well, if you're a heavy and you're quite good at intimidating people, well, I've got a few options for you. And if you're pretty organized and, you know, you've got the resources of the state to help you know that Billy's driving license is uh, coming up for renewal and, you know, maybe it's about time you knocked on his door, you know, you've you can do it better. So the overlap between the, uh, the state organisations and criminal gangs is, is not zero. And when he's stealing money, as you put it, from government departments and, and agencies, is that for his personal enrichment? Well, he's reputed to have something like 300 billion uh, US dollars uh, of his own. Um, some of it held directly, some of it indirectly, quite a lot of it's in Switzerland. He's probably the richest man in the world. Wow. I mean, people complain about MPs' wages here. Mate, I get 300 billion a day. <laughs> oh, my word. Imaginary currencies from my kids. But they, no, he's, he's a fantastically wealthy man. And of course, that control is... I mean, he's much more like an imperial monarch yes. than he is like a Soviet dictator. So, I mean, in terms of improving relations with Russia, I was going to come on to this later, but is our best hope really for, and, and, and the report identified there was a period of time when actually we, we, we kind of were engaged in Russia and, and in the end that broke down. Um, is our best hope for trying to re-engage Russia in some way that Putin dies? The problem is that would cause huge instability because he has so centralised power on himself that... You know, the only way he's been able to survive this long, and, you know, this is a guy who has been pretty senior in Russian politics now for the best part of whatever it is, 20-odd years, is by uh, removing all opposition. Some of them murdered, some of them imprisoned, some of them, you know, convinced to take the money and go. You know, a combination of all of that. And so there aren't any close rivals. There are no princelings waiting to come through. And so his his death would hugely destabilize it because there'd suddenly be, you know, this is, this is why monarchies and dictatorships are so fundamentally unstable and why um, Western countries develop primogeniture because actually if you know who loyalty goes to next, you avoid the barons all fighting, right? Mm. If you don't, as um, the Ottoman court didn't have primogeniture, but it, the inheritance went to somebody in the family. You end up with these extraordinary civil wars breaking out at the moment of every power transfer. And, and that's what Russia risks. I don't mean a full civil war in the usual sense, but I mean a civil war within the governing elite, within, the, within those sort of uh, corrupt um, power brokers at the heart of the state. So I'm not sure that's right. But I think what we've got to do, and look, this is really, really difficult, is we've got to try and work with um, uh, Russia's version of the FSB 
but the Federation of Small Businesses to build up um, the, um, you know, the, the small scale business environment that means that people actually have agency in their lives. Look, I mean, Russia is one of these countries that's completely topsy-turvy. The ordinary folk are incredibly industrious, incredibly hardworking, innovative, very highly trained in, you know, enormous numbers of subjects, including most obviously engineering and medicine. Absolutely phenomenal sort of uh, resource base for a, for, for a country. And the, the, the top is just, you know, a cesspit uh, of corruption of, of the most extraordinary level and violence. And so... You know, we, we tried this. This is what, you know, this is what Margaret Thatcher, John Major, and even Tony Blair at the beginning tried, was to engage with Russia to try and develop those sort of small business links and perhaps one day those big business links as well. And, you know, we invested hugely. We spent hundreds of millions of pounds on developing, uh, you know, on helping Russian nuclear disarmament, of course. That was the obvious bit. But we also spent, you know literally hundreds of millions of pounds on legal reforms, on helping their tax system, on, you know, doing the things that, you know, you need to run a state that the Soviet Union had never really done. And so now, funnily enough, you know, Russia has got a very effective um, tax system, electronic tax system. It's, you know, the organs of the state work. I mean, I wouldn't overstate it, but, you know, they could work. We have invested a huge amount. This idea that, you know, the West saw the Soviet Union collapse and then abandoned Russia is complete rubbish. I mean, it's literally, it's total fiction spread by, you know, propagandists of the extreme left on, or, or, or of Russian stooges. Because the reality is that when the, when the wall came down, as it were, we pumped hundreds of millions of pounds into Eastern Bloc countries and into Russia itself, like literally hundreds of millions, uh, and billions, in fact, into Russia, if you include the US contributions. And so, you know, what we need to do is we need to build on what we were trying to do then. But it's really, really hard at the moment because the state is so hostile. It's such a shame because even in my short life, Gorbachev was a moment of real hope. Medvedev, when Putin stood back for those years, seemed to be more open to the West and, and more reasonable. And it felt like there was a brief window there when he was in charge. And Putin, obviously, then, you know, they swapped roles back and, and that was the end of that. I mean... It's a shame that there aren't other names that immediately spring to mind of people that could succeed and perhaps be a bit more moderate than Putin. So how long does this problem continue for? Well, uh, I can't answer that question, I'm afraid. I mean, the real problem is, you know, there are a lot of people in the country, I mean, a hell of a lot of, you know, Russian uh, civilian population just wants to, you know, like everybody else, right? I mean, they just want a normal life. They want kids to go to decent schools, go to decent universities, you know, get married, have kids, you know, so, I mean, you know, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is normal, normal middle-class life the world over, right? And, but there is a gang of securocrats around the president who have been there since he was, uh, you know, station chief in, uh, in Leipzig in, in, in 89. And he, you know, he needs them to keep him safe and they need conflict with the West to justify their existence and to justify their power. And so, you know, they are very clear that they're constantly bigging up the enormous threat that is the West and the great evil that is the West. And therefore, they need to be armed and ready against it. And anybody who talks to the West is a traitor. And, you know, all of this sort of myth is, it's not really about us in a funny way. It's about keeping their own power. It's about maintaining their own control over the Russian people. And it's, it's incredibly sad because actually, I mean, you know, of course we're all suffering, right? I mean, you know, we know that um, these cyber attacks steal technology and intellectual property. They damage our infrastructure. They cost a fortune to defend against you. Know, of course we know that. But the real losers in all of this are the Russian people. And the Russian people are effectively living in a very, very large semi-open prison in which you might get murdered by one of the guards at any moment. You know, the level of political murder in, 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 in Russia today is very, very high. Boris Nemtsov is but one of many examples. And doing your job or mine, a journalist or a politician, is suicidal. I mean, for many people, if you want to be even slightly open or honest. The way that we deal with it, obviously, is a huge part of the, of the report that was published this week. They said that cyber is a crowded domain. So it's, it sounds like we have a lot of different agencies and departments all working on not just Russia, but on, on other cyber issues, and not necessarily communicating with each other? Well, 
I mean, the, the thing is, like all of these things, you know, 20 years ago, you spoke about cyber and it was a couple of geeks in the, uh, in the basement of their mother's house, right? Um, the, now it's everything. I mean, the very fact that you and I are doing this interview over Zoom on computers that neither of us could even begin to reprogram, just about switch them on and make the camera work, right? I mean, the, the idea that either of us can, can, can operate the operating systems is, you know, it is so integral to everybody's life that it has to be like that. But that means that cyber has gone from being, you know, the sort of thing that a couple of specialists in the MOD or GCHQ did to something that every single government department now does. Of course it does, like every business now does it. I mean, you know, it is, it is, it's like breathing. I mean, it's just become so universal. And so it's true that cyber has therefore become more diffuse because, you know, the MOD quite rightly needs to defend its own systems it can't just wait for GCHQ to come along and help. Now, that doesn't mean that GCHQ isn't helping, but you know what I mean? Everybody else has got a, a finger in this pie. And that's both good in the sense that you've got a lot of people working the, 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 the ground. But it also causes problems because things slip through the net. You think somebody else is doing something and they think you're doing it. You know, things get dropped. The report mentions cyber attribution, naming and shaming states or actors that, that carry out particular attacks. And they say that in 2010, the committee was asked to redact a mention of Russia on diplomatic grounds. It sounds like the UK is, is more likely now to, to name and shame. But how much effect does that actually have? Um, the answer is it depends. Um, it, it can have an effect because... You know, there are Russian companies that are trying to, you know, win business abroad, right? I mean, you know, and and when you name various companies, various individuals of being connected to cyber attacks, guess what? People are less convinced it's a great idea to employ their services. So it does have an effect. I'd just be cautious about saying how much of an effect. You know, it's a... It, it's it's not it's not always the game changer, but you know, I mean, Russia is interesting because Russia isn't China, right? Russia is not an absolute dictatorship that is quite happy to you know murder literally millions of people. It it does care about you know it bothers to have elections. Yes, it fixes them, but it does bother. China doesn't bother. You, you know what I mean? It's yes. And so, what does that tell us? It tells us that at least the fiction of respectability, the fiction of being a normal European country matters to the Russian elite, to some extent. I wouldn't overstate that, but to some extent. And so I think naming and shaming does matter because it, the other thing it does, of course, is it, is it shows that you know, this much feared institution is actually pretty cat-handed and keeps getting caught, which doesn't inspire confidence. One of the things they do, as well as using trolls and bots and the things that we've seen uh is spread misinformation, just general unrest and, and distrust uh, in, in different democracies through the use of propaganda channels like Russia Today. Uh, Labour have raised this this week. How does Russia Today still have an Ofcom licence? Frankly, I find it completely extraordinary. And Sputnik in Edinburgh, which uh, opened up in 2015, I think it was. You know, these companies of propaganda arms of a hostile state. I mean, you know, they're not media companies in the terms that you and I would understand them. They don't practice, uh, you, know, you know, freedom of expression in any real sense. They are, they're simply propaganda arms. And, uh, and they, you know, they pay very handsomely to people to go on. I remember the first time I was asked to go on for an interview, they offered me 500 pounds. What? Said, yeah, yeah. When I said no, they then offered me 750. And when I didn't answer that text, they offered a thousand, you know, so I'm pretty sure that whoever goes on is being paid to do it. Now, I, I, I didn't I really, realize they're getting paid that much. I just presume because it was yeah, a small no. channel, it'd be peanuts. But, but it's not a small channel. It's the Russian state. I know, but I guess in terms of viewers here, you know, it just feels like oh, a think, kind yeah, of obscure yeah. cable channel. Well, it's, it is an obscure cable channel, but they're pretty good at pushing out their stuff online. And yeah. you know, what, again, what I say, they're not trying to convince you that they're right. They're trying to convince you that there is no truth. And this is something that, you know, Soviet leaders have done, you know, throughout the last century. And indeed, uh, you know, since, since the beginning, you know, the Leninist program 
was to undermine your faith in institutions so that they could be destroyed and reformed, right? Only they never got round to the reforming bit. They only got round to the destroying <laughs> bit. And so you see all this sort of, you know, what, um, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen a film um, by Adam Curtis called Hypernormalization. It's available yeah. on iPlayer. It's well phenomenal worth film, yeah. It's a phenomenal film, and, and, and Adam's absolutely right, and you've got to talk to him about it, by the way. You should get him on the... Your, your oh, I'd love to. If you can put me in touch with him, that'd be great. Very happy to. He's brilliant. He's a completely extraordinary thinker. And he... What he is expressing, and I think brilliantly, is that the point of deceit is to break you down, not to offer an alternative. And so, actually, if I can drag everybody down, then I look relatively less bad. And that's the, you know, it, it's, a, it's a psychological phenomenon you see in, 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 you know, in many different areas, but, but Russia has instituted as a means of public policy. I had no idea Russia today were paying that sort of money. I mean, compared to what you get to go on Sky News or, or the BBC, often where you don't get paid at all. That well, is an astounding don't get anything to go on Sky yeah. or BBC. You know, and nor should they, by the way. But I mean, you know, but you don't because that's, you, you know, you're expressing your own political, right, you're promoting yourself as well as, you know, your ideas, right? Um, but Russia today, no, it's a, it's a paid for business. That's and I presume they pay their journalists very well. Uh, the Chinese channel pays similarly. So Alex Salmond, then, having a show on there, I just presume it was fairly small beans and he was doing it just to kind of keep his brand afloat. I reputed but, to be a seven-figure sum. Oh, my God. Now, I don't know, so I'm not, you know, somebody else would have to tell you if that's true or not, but it's reputed to be a, a very large sum. I mean, it's as simple as that, isn't it? I guess for people that might have concerns, the money makes it irresistible for some people. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not having a go at uh, Alex Salmon. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if he's getting that much or whether it's paying for, well, that's just the cost of the show and he gets a fraction of it or whatever. Uh, and the number may be wrong, but it, it, it's, you know, in, in the 50s, in the John Le Carey days, if you wanted to be Burgess or McLean, you'd better mean it because you're not doing it for the cash, right? Today you are. I mean, is that as well, you know, the, the Tory party is meant to be the party of national security, defence and security are part of the Tories' brand and image. And, you know, even when the Tory party is not talking about those things, particularly the last election, people would just instinctively assume that even Boris Johnson was a safer bet on those things than Jeremy Corbyn. Labour of the party, we're meant to worry about, about the Russians. And actually, we've had successive Tory prime ministers looking the other way. I mean, is it... Is it purely just because Russia invests a lot of money in, in the UK, particularly in London, that that means they get favourable terms? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, the law as it stands is drafted so that only UK citizens or UK businesses can donate money, right? And that sounds like it's a totally reasonable thing to do, right? And how do you discriminate between UK businesses? How do you discriminate between British citizens? If you're a British citizen and you wish to express your political views by donating to a political party openly, which, you know, the Electoral Commission are pretty clear on this, you have to do it openly, then how can I stop you? How can I say, oh, well, because you're of Russian origin, you can't. If you're of French origin, can you still? If you're of American origin, can you still? Do you see what I mean? Where do you, how do you draw that line? And this is where, you know, political parties have got to be, you know, they've got to be helped to account through the political process as well as through the legal process, if you like, where shame is just as important a factor as, um, as regulation. Because the reality is these are difficult judgment calls, right? I mean, they are, you know, you may say, oh, well, I know so-and-so is, you know, X this in Russia. They may be, they may, I mean, it may be true that they were an ex-minister or an ex-whatever, or it may also be true that they're hiding in the UK because Putin's trying to kill them because they were arguing for human rights grounds. Or, you know, there are any number of different occasions where, oh, well, so-and-so's so-and-so's wife, and therefore, really? Or maybe she has her own, you know, status and credibility? I mean, it, you know, maybe she's not just the spouse of a... You, you know what I mean? So there's a whole series of things where the answers are just not black and white i'm afraid they're not they're not binary and and you've got to you've got to use political judgment as much as regulation there does seem to have been at the very least a laissez-faire attitude towards it that 
the security services. I mean, how much is it down to the politicians and how much is it down to the security services? The, the report suggests that MI5 just wasn't taking this stuff seriously until fairly recently, that even the Vinyenko murder didn't trigger a kind of response within uh, the security and intelligence services. I mean, I think that's, uh, I'm afraid I think that's right. So I, I remember arriving on the, um, on the terrace of the House of Commons as a newly elected MP and seeing people who were on the photographs that you saw as you left the office from my old building. And there were, there were these photographs as you left the office and it says, if you, if you see one of these people on your tube ride home, you know, be suspicious because these are Russian, known Russian intelligence agents operating, <laughs> operating in the UK. Sorry, mate. Trying to hack um, the call. Yeah, exactly. Um, these are known Russian intelligence officers or agents or whatever, uh, uh, operating in the UK, if they're following you around, report them to security. And, you know, I thought nothing of it because I never saw them on my tube ride home. And then I saw a few of the faces I recognised on the terrace of the House of Commons. My God. And what did and you do about it? I reported it to the Home Secretary. And what did they do? Uh, Theresa May never says anything, so I have no idea what she did. Um, but the, um, you know, and I... The problem is, you know, we run an open democracy, right? And so, how do you say no? Who do you say no to? Did you ever see those faces around again? I haven't seen them for a while, not since Skripal. And what were they doing on the terrace of the House of Commons? Whining and dining? Yeah, I mean, drinks like journalists, right? I mean, you know, chatting. I mean, this is so scary. It's the sort of thing... I mean, any government, but it just seems so strange that the Conservatives didn't take this so seriously. Do you know what I mean? I, I, Look, I mean, it's not... First of all, you don't know that they didn't. Secondly, the, the thing that everybody was focused on was terrorism. And you know the number... You know, it takes an awful lot of people to follow one person, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, you know, you've got to have one or two people on foot, one or two people in a car... You've probably got to have a couple of static locations. So you're talking about, you know, running up to eight or ten people. Then you've got them to have them on an eight-hour shift. So you've got to number, multiply whatever the number is by three. And you've got to have a headquarters. You know what I mean? And you add up and it starts to get a very, very difficult thing to do and a very expensive business. And so you've got choices to make. And this is the nature of security. You've got choices to make. Do you follow the potential bomber? Or do you follow, you know, the Russian officer intelligence officer or the chinese one or the burmese one or do you follow the zimbabwean one who you think might be about to murder a zimbabwean opposition activist or do you see you know there are a lot of people britain is an open country it this is hard it's really hard and i you know i think that the emphasis has been you know there's been on hostile state actors has, has been too low, which is why I spoke to the Home Secretary about it in 2015. And again, you know, I think I've raised it with every Home Secretary since then, actually. Um, because it's, you know, I, I think that frankly, defending, you know, the motto of MI5 is, is uh, Regnum Defender, you know, Defenders of the Realm. And defending the realm is not just what I used to do as a soldier, which was standing on the border with a gun, if you like. It's it's defending the individual liberties and freedoms of the British people. It's defending our ability to talk freely, to know that information is broadly speaking fair, um, to be able to have a democratic debate followed by an election in which we're not bullied into silence by cyber activity and we're not, you know, and the result isn't fixed by a, you know, a sleight of hand. So all of these areas which you know, for very understandable reasons, MI5 has been, you know, found difficult to do because they, what they don't want to do, of course, is they never want to be accused themselves of having played politics. They don't want, you know, they don't want the Labour Party to say, you know, this was all, sti- you know, the election was stitched up by MI5. Or the Conservative Party to say, you know, our funding has been cut off by MI5. Of course, they don't want that. They don't want to do that. And so they've got really difficult judgment calls to make in these areas. But I have to say, I think they need to do more because at the moment, you know, where it, you know, when we when we look at 
hostile state intelligence activity in the UK, it feels very much that you know, our own intelligence services are handing out parking tickets while they're looting the Bank of England. Is there a political danger for Boris Johnson here that even if these problems predate his premiership, perhaps the way he's handled the pandemic and the way that successive Conservative Prime Ministers have handled the threat from Russia creates an impression of a government and a party that think they don't make much effort. They're not bothered about the detail. They're kind of let stuff go. I mean, do you, do you think there's a danger that these things add up to creating a general impression in that way? I, I, I mean, you know, you're, one thing I learned in politics is you're always responsible for things that happened that come to light on your watch, even when they happened before. I remember getting blamed for something that had happened in 1969. Now I was <laughs> in 1973. So I thought that was, that was pushing it, but you know, I'm afraid that's just the nature of politics, right? You're always responsible for your watch, even if it happened, you know, yeah. on a previous rotation. And, um, but I think, you know, I think the government is taking this seriously, you know, I, but, the, but the problem is the resource that this takes is enormous. And, you know, we're talking a moment at the moment about Shamima Begum. We're talking at the moment about Russian uh, intelligence activity. What is the biggest threat? Is it Shamima Begum potentially radicalizing young people in our country? Or is it Russia seeking to neutralize our nuclear deterrence by encouraging the breakup of the United Kingdom. I mean, you know, they're both kind of important, right? What do so you think, this is, uh, just on Shamima Begum, where do you stand on how she should be treated? Look, I didn't see the intelligence. So, I, I, you know, like you, I'm afraid, our opinion is interesting but fundamentally uninformed. And I don't mean that we're, you know... We're, true we're, my opinion on most things. But no, but it's, you know, it's just true, right? We, we just don't know. I don't mean, I don't mean we're idiots and we haven't done the homework, but, but neither of us have read the intelligence files. And what I noticed is the SIAC court, the uh, Special Intelligence uh, Court, which is a closed hearing of high court judges who are able to read the intelligence they upheld the Home Secretary's decision. It went to appeal, and the appeal court, which is not a secret court, so it doesn't have the ability to read secret intelligence. I don't mean the court is secret, by the way. I mean it, the intelligence that they can receive is secret. So they didn't read the intelligence files. So they didn't know what evidence, what judgment the Home Secretary was weighing up. And they overturned it. And the problem is that the judges, by the way, the judges, I'm sure, are people of high integrity, very, very astute learning, really know what they're talking about. I don't, I don't question them at all. But in all of these cases, judgment is fundamentally about balance of rights, not about absolutes. Mm. Who has the right? Does she have a right to a fair trial in which she can present herself, in which she can be present? Or do I have the right not to live in fear and not to wonder whether or not my kids are going to get murdered on the way to school. Now, clearly there's a balance here because my right is somewhat more limited in the sense that there's 65 million people here. The chances are, you know what I mean? Her rights to a fair trial, by the way, are about all of us too. Right? We all want rights to a fair trial as well, should, should the worst ever happen to us. So this is about a balance of rights. And that's why I'm afraid the intelligence really matters. And that's why I'm slightly uncomfortable with where we've, come down because where we've come down is one court that saw the intelligence agreed with the home secretary the appeal court which didn't see the, the intelligence didn't now i'm not saying that the first course was right it is entirely possible that an appeal of a secret court would have overturned the judgment too but it, it looks like the balance of rights if you know what a threat she is fall on 65 million british people and the balance of rights if you think she's an innocent abroad and you don't know that she was, you know, I don't know, sewing people into suicide vests and threatening them with death if they, you know, fled from a suicide bombing attempt in Raqqa, which one of the newspapers were reporting a while ago, then if you don't know about that, then you think that she's some sort of, you know, poor innocent 15 year old lured into, into a horrible place and, it's, and her rights need to be defended. So I can't tell you which is the right answer. All I can say is that the process leaves me uncomfortable.
You alluded earlier to the, to the Scottish independence referendum, which the report says may have been the first time Russia intervened in a Western democracy in, in, in the way that it does with bots and trolls and everything else. <clears throat> the phrase you used there, it kind of hadn't struck me. I, I understood why Putin would want the break with the UK because you know, you're, you're, you're weakening a, a, a key yeah. strategic opponent. Well, I hadn't, get... for some reason, thought of it through the nuclear angle. That hadn't occurred to me that it's, it, it's weakening that, that nuclear element. So, look, I mean, first of all, Vladimir Putin thinks the greatest geostrategic disaster is the breakup of the Soviet Union, right? And he, who does he blame for it? He blames Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Right. So, if he can take revenge by breaking up the United States and the United Kingdom, he'll go for it. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, and, you know, I should be very clear, there are people of high integrity who have nothing to do with anything to do with Russia, who believe that an independent Scotland or a separate Scotland is a political ideal. And, and that's a perfectly legitimate. I happen to think they're wrong. I disagree with them fundamentally and totally. But that, you know, just because you're walking down the same road does not mean that you are cooperating. So, so I want to be quite clear. I'm not accusing anybody of being a tool of Russian influence or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it is in the influence, uh, sorry, it is in the interest of Vladimir Putin to break up the British Armed Forces, to break up the United Kingdom, to keep us distracted on the international stage while he plays in Libya and Syria and murders thousands of people in both. You know, this is this is in his advantage, right? Now that that doesn't mean, I say again, that really doesn't mean that people who support Scottish separation are, are Russian, you know, trolls. That's not what I mean at all. But they do have, you know, but they are going along the same line. It sounds like from what the report says and from some of the commentary around it anyway, most of what Russia did was in the aftermath of, 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 uh, of throwing the result into doubt, of spreading conspiracy yeah. theories about the result rather than actually intervening during the campaign itself. Well, I, I think that's right. And I, look, I mean, you know, I don't think it's in very much doubt that Russia has started to play in democratic processes. But, and there is a big but, you know, Sputnik only set up in Edinburgh after the referendum, right? You know, it didn't do it beforehand. Um, a lot of the bot activity that we saw building up and certainly saw uh, during the Brexit referendum, you know, I don't think maybe... It, it, it doesn't appear that it was enough to swing a result, right? You know, you're talking about a million and a half people. What is it, 1.8 million people who voted, more voted to leave than remain? You know, we're talking about an awful lot of people on a system that is still done by pen and paper, which is actually really secure, of course, because, you know, in order to stuff those ballot boxes, you need a lot of people with a lot of bits of paper and a lot of pens, right? I mean, you, you can't just digitally alter the figures. Um, so, our, you know, our democratic system is, is broadly speaking, uh, secure. I'm not saying there aren't problems. Of course, there are, there are problems in every system. But, but broadly speaking, it works. But it is, it is better at constituency level because you've then got, if you want to influence it, you've got to fix 650 elections in various different ways through ballot boxes in 30 different locations to be counted in you know, four times one after another in a, in a sports hall at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, it's just awkward to do it. It's not like electronic voting where you sort of go online, fiddle the figures and move on. The EU referendum is, is what's caused the most outcry um, regarding potential Russian interference. And what has really upset people in the wake of this report is the fact that we don't really know whether they intervened or, or, or got involved because basically we didn't look. That just feels incredible, given Litvinenko, that we then knew in the aftermath of, of the Scottish independence referendum that they were gearing up, as you say, they set up that office in Edinburgh, that to go through a major event like that and in retrospect not to look into it feels incredible. Well, first of all, the MI5 is operationally independent for exactly the reason I told you about, because you don't want somebody like me saying can you please go and spy on my Labour opponent? You know, that is, that's not a particularly healthy way of conducting democracy, right? You can just get a private detective to do that anyway, right? 
I, I don't think you could. I think you might get into quite a lot of trouble if you did that. I'm going to get caught, yeah. Right, okay. Your way of campaigning and my way of campaigning are a bit different, Matt. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I never did that, by the way. I was just purely... Just for the record. You wouldn't have to go to MI5 if you wanted to. <laughs> but look, you know, so MI5 are operationally independent. They are very understandably cautious about getting involved in political processes. So I totally understand their caution. And meanwhile, the government has been, well, you may have noticed, pretty busy, you know, first of all, trying to negotiate uh, agreements and, and get them through Parliament. And so, you know, I can understand why it hasn't happened. But I think that the point that the report makes is that it really must happen. And, you know, we wrote a report in the Foreign Affairs Committee in May 2018 called Moscow's Gold about the soft corruption of Russian money through our financial services, our legal services, our sort of pinstriped enablers, if you like. And we called on the government at the time to reinforce the um, FCA and uh, other, uh, and the, and the, and the um, NCA as well, the National Crime Agency as well, because these organisations have a responsibility in protecting us just as much as uh, MI5 does and in different ways. So, you, you know, there's a few of us who've been calling for more investigatory powers into, into Russian activity in the UK for a long time. And I think, you know, this is, a, this is a reminder, an important reminder, but just another reminder that we've really got to get on with it. Though I do understand, you know, why others have been reticent so far. But people will be cynical, won't they? They'll say the reason they don't want to investigate it is because vote leave one and Dominic Cummings, Dominic Rabin and Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, key vote leave figures basically now run the government. And why on earth would they look into it? Why on earth would they want to do an investigation into a campaign that they won? Because MI5 is operationally independent, so it's not up to them. Um, you know, they don't, they don't control it in that sense. Um, just as they don't control the police force, right? I mean, you know, police officers around the country are operationally independent. Uh, policy and the law, sorry, the law is set by Parliament, you know, and the government, obviously, and, and resourcing is set by Parliament and the government, but actually it's up to the police how they, how they enforce the law. And the same is true of, the, you know, of, of MI5. Um, so I, I, I don't buy that. I mean, look, I know people are going to say odd things at odd times because you know, people do, right? But I mean, but it is, I, I, th I think it's a hell of a stretch to say that the result is uh, in any way in doubt. I think, I'm afraid, I think that's rubbish. I do think that Russian activity has contributed to stirring up ill feeling on social media and trying to make it harder for us to come back together afterwards as well. Uh, and so, you know, the great irony is of course that before a referendum, Russia may support one side, after a referendum, it may support the other in order to stir up resentment, right? I mean, it, it, it's not about, as I said at the beginning, this isn't about picking winners. This is about convincing you the entire system is rubbish and can't be trusted. London is referred to as London Grad in this report and talks about the laundromat of London, financial and reputational laundering. I mean, the, the impression you get from reading this stuff and other reports and other coverage is that London is just awash with Russian money that it is cleaning on behalf of the Russian establishment. I mean, how big a problem in reality do you think it is? It's, it's a serious problem. I think this is why we wrote Moscow's Gold in 2018, because Moscow's Gold is coming over here being cleaned and financing uh, an entire system of, you know, petty corruption, not just in the UK, but, you know, through various offshore ventures and whatever. And, you know, major businesses, businesses that I'm not going to name on your podcast because I'm not rich enough to afford the lawyers to defend myself. But, you know, household names in financial services and the law and whatever are involved in this. You know, we named one of them in, in, in the report, but, uh, you know, you'll have to read the report to read, read the, the, the particular paragraph. Um, because it's, it, it's, a real, it's a real issue, and it, and it is a national security concern, right? I mean, it is genuinely a national security concern that people in our uh, parliament, in the House of Lords, in uh, a lot of businesses are willing to... Um, support and enable 
brutal dictatorships, corrupt regimes, individuals and actions that are fundamentally against the interests of the British people. It's, you know, not to put too strong a point on it, it's a form of treason. The rules on donations, and more to the point, the declaration of donations is very different for members of the House of Lords than it is for members of the House of Commons. It seems like a pretty simple reform to do, to, to make the House of Lords more open, yeah. is to make it easier to declare those to, to donations. I mean, I mean, it strikes me, you know, if you're, if you're a parliamentarian, and I, I know we don't always think of members of the House of Lords as being MPs, but they are members of Parliament. I mean, not, they're not elected members of Parliament, but they are members of Parliament. I, you know, I, I don't understand why, if you have a voice in our national legislature, or by the way, in, in any of the devolved legislatures, you shouldn't have to declare your interests in the same way. I mean, you know, if you're on Kent County Council, you're running a budget of some £2 billion for 1.8 million people. You have enormous spending authority over social care. Um, you have influence over uh, housing and, you know, various other things. Of course you should declare. I mean, there's no question you should declare. You have influence over public policy and people should know what that influence comes from. And whether you're, you know, an MSP or, uh, or in the Senate or any of these houses, I think that you should have the same reporting requirement. Do you have any idea of the scale of how many, as a, as a percentage of the House and of Lords? Ireland too, by the way, actually. Northern Ireland is allowed to get uh, secret donations, secret political donations, because of the troubles. Well, sorry, that's got to stop. Just with the House of Lords, do you have any idea, as a rough percentage, how many members of the House of Lords have connections to the sorts of regimes that we've described? I, I don't, but I, look, my guess is it's going to be a very tiny percentage, but that's not okay. the point, right? I mean, it, it shouldn't happen at all. The London laundromat, as they, as they call it in this report, obviously just won't just apply to Russia. This will be... Yeah. A lot of dirty money coming through our capital city, not just from Russia, but from China and from all sorts of other places. That's exactly right. And, and I'm, um, you, you know, you, you'd be well advised to read Oliver Bulow's book, Moneyland, um, which talks about this and which we use, um, you know, to help us with our report. And I'm, I'm sure others have read too. Or read some of Luke Harding's work on, um, on what's going on here. You know, this is a genuine problem. And, you know, it's not, it's not nothing that one of the deputy prime ministers of Russia, a man who has never earned more than 70 or 80,000 pounds a year, owns an 11 million pound flat, right? I mean, there are several people who have enabled a regime to reward a corrupt individual and therefore to maintain loyalty and to maintain the oppression of the Russian people, and to maintain threats to our, neighbor, to our friends and allies in Estonia and Ukraine and other places. And that reward is given how? Well, it's given with assets that the UK government has influence over, not control, but has influence over. And it's enabled by people like you and me, who are solicitors and accountants and estate agents, who have seen the guy come over, kind of know the whole thing's dodgy. Don't quite declare it because, you know what, know your client, I know who he is, you know, he's sold me, he's got it from a, the soul of his grandmother's dacha. Okay, that's good enough. You know what I mean? We all have a responsibility here, we really do. It's terrifying, really. Is there any... <laughs> trying to find a positive. What hope is there of... Well, I mean, just... Not just with Russia, but for instance, on London and, and, and the cash that flows through the capital, is that just a, a logical consequence of, of the deregulation of the financial industry that we've seen? Over oh, no, it's much older than that. No, it's much older than that. It's much older than that. The UK really became, um, there are two things that really, really opened up the UK. The first was the UK was willing to do business with the Soviet Union uh, through its financial markets and when the United States and many others weren't. So in the, uh, just after the war in the 40s, the UK handled Soviet gold um, and various other financial instruments when others wouldn't. And then later the euro bond enabled um, currency transfers without currency control, effectively work around currency control. And so 
those two actions really transformed the city and opened it up in a very different way. And, and, and the city went from being, you know, what you would think of as investment banking, as in, you know, I would like to build a mine in you know, Yorkshire or whatever. Um, I want to borrow some money. Um, how much? Look, sorry, closed mines in Yorkshire. Well, all right, Congo or whatever. But you know what I mean. But you know, you want you know you want to you want to build a major infrastructure project. You borrow money over a hundred years. You you know what I mean. You and you have financial instruments to support it. It went from being that to being um, a huge brokerage, basically brokering international money, so that London, ironically, unlike uh, many other financial centres, is not is not very national. It's very international. You know, the amount of UK business that is done in, in the financial heart of London is proportionately not as high as it would be in many other countries where it's mostly national business. For us, it's mostly international business. Now, that's a huge strength, of course. You know, it's turned us into a, a very uh, prosperous uh, and influential nation. But it, it comes, with a, comes with a cost. And therefore, stopping that would come at a cost, wouldn't it? That if, if we perhaps well, tighten regulation, do we become less prosperous? Funnily enough, I think the world is moving, actually. And, and so I think uh, aligning, uh, you know, virtue with economy is something we can now do. I think that we are, you know, I think, I think there is a moment where increasing numbers of people realise that being in a, a, a proper legal jurisdiction uh, with the ability to call on the resources and skills that the City of London has built up in any number of different ways, you know, not just legal and accounting, but, you know, the number of services that are provided in London from PR to reputation or whatever, you know, is, is just extraordinary and, and, and means that actually investment here is a lot stickier, if you like, because you've got to move that many more people to take the infrastructure. You're not just moving a bank, right? You're moving an entire system entire operating system to another another place if you want to move it so i think the uk is in you know has the opportunity not only to clean up its act but also to do it um to do it and prosper from it by becoming a, a very obviously clean jurisdiction i think that's not only in, is it possible i think it's in our interest which is one of the reasons why i've joined people like andrew mitchell and margaret hodge in calling for um you know beneficial ownership registers and why you know i've also been calling for foreign asset registers and you know, in, the, in the in may in the financial times calling for um you know foreign ownership of of different assets to be um controlled in other ways and do you feel like you're getting anywhere with your government do, do you think boris johnson is, is likely to act on these recommendations no, i do look i do think i'm getting somewhere look I, i've had a i mean you know touch wood i've had a pretty good run for the last few months where the foreign policy that i've heard coming out of the foreign office has been stuff that i've been asking for for the past two and a half years so um i've been as a committee chair, I found myself in the very unusual position of being exceptionally loyal. But if I wasn't being loyal, I'd be being disloyal to myself. So that would be daft. But um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that the government is moving. And I think there are various reasons for that. Uh, one is, you know, the political party is moving in that direction. You know, there is, a, there is a feeling that this is genuinely threatening our national security. This is genuinely undermining us. And you know, we need to take more actions to resist. And, and I'm very pleased with the work that the Foreign Affairs Committee has done in highlighting that, uh, both in that Moscow's Gold report, but also in uh, reports on other uh, different jurisdictions. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that, you know, the world is changing. And, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, when you were doing business with the SOVs, you know, you kind of knew about the gulags, but you could pretend you didn't. Now you can't pretend you don't know about the mass political murders in Moscow. You can't pretend you don't know about the mass imprisonment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. You, you, you just can't pretend you don't know. You do know. It's all over the media. And if you choose to turn a blind eye, that is your choice. That is not that you missed it in the, you know, paragraph four of, uh, you know, page 12 of the Morning Star. Boris has been Prime Minister for a year now. It's flown by. How do you assess his first year in charge of the country? It's been tough, hasn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever you think of him politically, you, you know, you've got to have sympathy for a guy who, in his first year, 
goes from, you know, a bizarre minority fractious parliament that can't pass anything to an election against Jeremy Corbyn, who on one level is the easiest opponent the world has ever seen because, you know, opposing folk who could very easily be um, tarred as, you know, terrorist supporting anti-Semites, which is, you know, frankly, what he appears to be, um, is, is an easy win, but at the same time, it's a very odd election. It's a very difficult election because of the division in the country over, obviously over Brexit, but over many other things as well. To go from that to coming back in December, finally having a break, having a kid, and then going straight into COVID. I mean, and, and you know, nearly dying. You know, this is, this is pretty extraordinary. I and mean, the last year has been really extraordinary. I mean, when I was elected in 2015, I thought I was joining a relatively stable, you know, conservative administration that had a reasonable expectation for you know 10 15 years of stability out looking out and since then it's been well every year the waters have got choppier haven't they so you know it's been pretty extraordinary but i think you know i think like all governments it's been it's been difficult but actually i think it's it's getting there you know i mean if you look at tyler cowan's piece in bloomberg whenever it was two three days ago on the government's response to COVID. Look, I mean, the, you know, the government's initial response was, frankly, you know, feeling its way through. But so was everyone else, right? I mean, some countries got luckier than others. Some made better calls than others. Those who'd had SARS in recent years made better decisions than those who thought it was a flu pandemic. You know, we we see that. But now the UK is again leading. We've got um, UK scientists and universities at the forefront of vaccine research. They may or may not be one of the first to find a vaccine. We've got um, uh, the UK leading the Gavi Vaccine uh, Alliance. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, uh, the Defence Secretary, has done brilliantly on that. You know, we've got Britain now again, you know, getting ready for the COP26 next November. You know, we've got some real positives. I mean, there's a lot more that we've got to see. I mean, you know, we've, you know, Rishi Sunak's furloughs have been brilliant and his and his management has been fantastic, but he's, we've now got to think about how on earth do we reform uh, the economy to make it work, like really work for, for a different time, for a post-COVID time. You know, we had homes for heroes after the Second World War. Uh, you know, I think we need to look at a much more ownership society after COVID too, because it's not just about homes, it's also about equity and business. And you've heard me talking about Greg's, you know, and, and, uh, and their ownership model, and there are others too, but you know, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot we should be doing here. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back on in such a short space of time. Well, it's it's such an interesting report. You'll forgive me for wanting to talk about it. It's oh, it's a glory moment. At this rate, you'll be back on next week. We're going to become a double act if you're not careful. I, I well, I mean, for your for your reputation, I hope not. But for <laughs> but for the world, I hope it's not as well because. I seem to only be invited on when bad things are happening happening globally. So it's it's like it's like that moment when you see Kate Adie turn up in a country. That's the time to run and hide. Oh mate, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, Tom Tugendhat. Just so good having him back on. Um, and I just got so much more. The report, by the way, is really easy to read. Obviously, the bits that are redacted at times make it a little bit frustrating. Um, but it's it, because it's just a summary, and this, they explain this in the report that there's a whole appendix that effectively is the real report, the, the real meat of it that they can't publish at the moment for national security reasons. Um, but the summary itself, which is the report that was released this week, is really brilliant and infuriating reading. Um, uh, but but Tom, obviously, it's just such a great guest for for explaining these things. And, and giving us the benefit of that, that history and, and that context and his own expertise. Um, so, uh, as always, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any feedback, any suggestions. Um, always nice to know where people listen. Uh, Ricardo got in touch this week, who listens in Mexico City, uh, which is uh, a, a real thrill. So, Ricardo, thank you very much for, for listening to the show. And, of course... It doesn't have to be in a far-flung place. I, I, I feel bad that I'm always um, 
sort of encouraging people to say that they listen by the Great Wall of China or in Siberia or something. It's just as exciting if you're on a bus in Nottingham or or uh, or uh, on a tram in Manchester, wherever you are. Um, it's a pleasure that you listen, so thank you. Um, as I said at the start, I've got a book out, Politically Homeless, which will be out in October. You can pre-order it now. I've put the link in the show notes. So uh, hopefully that'll be up your street or indeed up the street of your relatives and of course you know it'll be christmas soon so you might want to get those bulk orders in now um i can't promise this will be the last time i mention the book i will probably promote it a fair bit so i apologize in advance for that shameless self-promotion um but it's a cool thing to have done isn't it so hopefully you, you if you enjoy this i'm sure you'll enjoy that um i'm gonna shut up about it now <laughs> um but thank you for downloading this and, and obviously part of the reason why i mentioned the book apart from the fact that obviously be nice if people bought it, and I'm proud of having done it, is that during the lockdown, I was putting out more than a podcast a week. And, um, you know, I, I've i been writing a book. Is Basically, I'm sort of apologising to you for, for not having done more podcasts, I think. That's that. That's why uh, I've been I've been very busy writing a book uh, for the last few months. So I probably would have podcasted more were it not for that. So um, apologies for that. Um, I shall endeavour to podcast more. Um but I'm sure some of you think, well, actually, I could probably do with a little bit less. So I'm sure some of you actually have been uh, delighted um, that I'm only doing one a week. I shall leave you to it. Have a wonderful weekend, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.